This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is the kickoff in a series about siblings, and the series is inspired by a new book by Dr. Jeannie Safer called Cain's Legacy. I'll be telling you a little bit more about this book in a minute, but I want to introduce you to Dr. Jeannie Safer, who is actually the guest that I have interviewed most frequently in the show <laughs> in the three and a half years that I've been doing it. That's an honor, Anne. <laughs> it is. It's an honor for me. I feel that way. Dr. Jeannie Safer is a psychotherapist in New York City with a specialty in working with challenging sibling relationships. Her first book, The Normal One, Life with a Difficult or Damaged Sibling, explores the challenges of living with a sibling who suffers many problems and limitations and the impact that this has on the well child. But Dr. Saver has just come out, as I mentioned, with a new book, Cain's Legacy, Liberating Siblings from a Lifetime of Rage, Shame, Secrecy, and Regret. And it is my great honor to be able to talk to you about that book tonight. Welcome back to Safe Space, Jeannie. I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. And just, just hearing the title and how how powerful these relationships are, you know, rage, shame, secrecy, regret. People don't think of siblings like that. They think of them as a source of comfort and, you know, pleasure, and and this is the dark side of it. As usual, you, Dr. Jeannie Safer, have gone to the dark side. <laughs> yes. yes, I'm the agent of the dark side, Dr. Ann. <laughs> That's right, which is what I love but about But it's the dark side that, you know, these taboos are things that, that weigh us down. And when we talk about them, um, we, are, we really can be liberated by that. Yeah, and so, that's, my, so... that's my mission, I think, in life. Yeah, so we are going to get to that in one minute, but let's define our terms first. So... You use the term sibling strife, and I want to know what is the difference between strife, and we're talking about adults now, between adult sibling strife and regular old rivalry? The difference is qualitative. It's something that doesn't get better. I guess that's the, the simplest way, that this is a kind of ongoing current undercurrent in a relationship where it's it's not just you have some disagreements and you make up this is a kind of this is the norm and it's a it's a kind of atmosphere that the siblings live in where they're never really comfortable with each other they can never have a conversation that's not scripted uh they and and i think also they don't go to each other for the consolations of family you describe in the book these kind of relationships where they speak twice a year, exchange formal cards or gifts, but there's not really any any real wanting to connect. Yeah, there's there's no real warmth between them. And there's there's this kind of tension and, and anxiety, very often shame, you know, and feeling, you know, what have I done or how can, how can I get off the phone? Or, you know, one person said to me, thank God for caller ID, because that way I know my sister's calling. Right. You know, this isn't this isn't what anybody wants to feel with the the relationship, the family relationship that's actually the longest in our life. It, uh, one of the statistics that I read said fifty to eighty years, and we only know our parents about thirty to fifty years. But this is a person that that travels with us inside us long after we stop living in the same house with them. So these these troubled sibling relationships really darken our lives. And how how common do you think this is, Jeannie? I mean, well, the, again, the research showed. I was really struck by it. 
that there, at least a third of adults has a problematic sibling relationship, one that they would describe as not close. And then what I found very interesting is when when, clinici- when clinicians actually probed that, it went up to 45%. Because people don't talk about it that comfortably, but when somebody really asks you, and you know, one of the things I discovered when I was doing this research, and I would announce, you know, I, I went to a doctor's office and I announced I was doing this, and the nurse started telling me, oh yes, well, <laughs> let me tell you about my sister. You can't get away from it. Right. And then I think you said the doctor started telling you, too. Yes. The doctor told me, too. I know. It They're fighting really over your ears. They're yes. fighting. Well, well, because they don't have anybody to talk to about it. Because what are you right. going to do, talk to your parents? <laughs> right. No um, kidding. And, and also, the thing that strikes me and is that people who have really loving, close sibling relationships don't know about this world. And those of us who have nothing but these kinds of relationships, because, of course, I write from my own experience, too, don't know really what it's like to have a true sister or brother. I mean, we can find surrogates in our, in our friends, and thank goodness, but I, you know, I, have a, I have a very close friend who has a sister who loves her dearly, and they, they, you know, they celebrate together, they weep together. I mean, the, the sister's husband just died, and my friend was diagnosed with something, and this, they, they, they're there for each other just without thinking. Uh, and it's it's such a marvelous thing that many many people don't have. And do you know how how common do you think it is, Jeannie, for people who don't have it are in this kind of chronic detente almost, as I hear you describe it, yes. where they can get there? Do you think do you think it's possible to move from that kind of formal, superficial to something conf- real to something where you really <laughs> turn to each other? Well, I think I know it is, but not always, because remember for that, it takes two people. Both people have to really want it and really work at it, but it is possible. I have a number of instances in the book where, and some of them are remarkable. Just I never would have thought these people could get over things. Uh, Just to give you one example, a woman I interviewed whose brother was, was very disturbed as a child. Among other things, he kicked her in her crotch and made her bleed. Mm. He kicked her teeth out. He, uh, he left her outside in the winter and locked the door and didn't get, she didn't get in. I mean, this kind of stuff, which you would think would be a lifetime of awfulness. And he came to her. He never admitted anything, but he started being really good and loving to her. And they have a real relationship. It's not perfect, but they take family vacations together. I mean, I was, I was in awe of this. And he's, he's never yet acknowledged, yes, I did that to you, I'm sorry? No, which was really fascinating. This was, uh, this was a, every book is a learning experience when you write it. Because <laughs> you think that was a prerequisite. Yes, but what he said to her a few times is, uh, you know, oh, I wasn't such a great brother, but you really turned out wonderfully. <laughs> and she said huh. that was enough for me because his actions showed me that he really loved me and he and she also said it was it was really fascinating because you know we have our own our own notions of how things ought to be and certainly my notion because i also wrote a book on forgiveness was that you have to make a real apology and acknowledge but this guy couldn't do it and she saw that she also saw that he had become he turned into a really decent man he was an excellent professional he was a good father and he turned into a very good brother. 
And that was enough for both of them. But I also, in the book, I have guidelines about how you can figure out, questions to ask yourself to figure out whether you want to try to make a relationship better, um, what you'd have to do to be able to approach a sibling. Um, I always recommend that people take the initiative in this because that puts you in charge of it. You don't wait till the other. If you want to do it, don't wait till the other person starts it. Right, because you could wait forever. Yes, you could. I mean, I just had an experience recently. I, I, I was talking about the book with a woman I know professionally, and she said, she said, gee, I wish I would have had this for Thanksgiving. She said, mm. my sister was there, and she, this woman is much more successful than her sister. Uh, and they're both in their 50s. She said, she didn't say hello to me. And I could see the pained expression in this woman's face. And I said, so what did you do? And she said, nothing. She said, I didn't say hello either. She said, I don't even know why. And I said, well, look, luckily Christmas is coming. You have another chance. Right. So I haven't seen her since. And I'm really curious whether she was able to go to her sister and simply say, hello, Merry Christmas. Well, part, what of, part of what I want to talk about tonight is this phenomenon that you describe called sib-speak. And I, uh, want, yes. I want to get into that, but before we do, this, the example you just gave is such a perfect one where there's this interchange that happens, in this case a nonverbal one, where there's no verbal, and, then, and people sort of seem to get frozen in it. And there's this terrible... Frozen kind of is the word. ...paralyzing quality where no one's naming what's really going on. Yes. There's no directness. And it just and it and it lasts for years, even decades like that. And and you can't when you're in it, you can't really see a way out of it. And anyway, well, so tell me more what you mean by sib speak. Let's describe it a little and then let's talk well, about some examples. Well, one of the things that helps you get out of it is really identifying that you're in it. You know, and saying it out loud, not just thinking that's the way it is. And sib speak is the way in. This is it's a language it's it's a language that siblings, uh, conflicted siblings, use with each other, and I made up the word, but I love it <laughs> because yeah. it it describes. It's a kind of archaic language where communication, as you and I are doing now, is not the point. The point is grievance collection, accusation, avoidance. Um, you know, very primitive, painful feelings that get uh, communicated in tones of voice in uh, irrelevant things. I mean, I could give you some wonderful ex- descriptions of things that people said to each other, uh, each other examples. Yeah. And those... these are often people I interviewed. Okay. And here's some of my favorites. Uh, brother to sister, you never thanked me for the flowers I gave you in 1982. And this is now 2010 or something. This is, yes. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favorites. Right. And, and let's see, uh, some other ones. Oh, one person said, I think you stole the money that I gave you for Dad's Christmas presents. Also in 1982, probably. Right, right, right. right. Um, and one of my favorites, which was so shocking, because I was present when Brother A said it to Brother B, which was at their mother's funeral. Because any occasion is good for sip speak. Okay. Um, the elder brother said to his younger brother, elder brother is very successful in his field, and, but the younger brother was kind of a an early hit and became kind of famous at, at 14 and 15 for his writing. The elder brother said, you know, when I cleaned out mom's house, there was a shoebox full of stuff of mine, an entire closet of things of yours, of things you'd written. 
That's what he announces to his brother at the funeral. And right. the brother, being defensive, said to me, well, what was I supposed to do, unwrite my articles? <laughs> right. He didn't approach his brother. He was tongue-tied and brain-tied. And, and that's what happens to people. I mean, I, I speak from personal experience. You know, um, there were so many times with my brother that uh, he would say things. One of the things he said to me uh, that at the time I really didn't know how to respond to, and now now that he's dead and I thought about it, I really know what I would have said. He said, after mother dies, you'll probably, we'll probably never see each other again. And I felt awful about that because I thought it was going to be true, and I was kind of relieved that it would be. Yes. Right? And now, you know what I would have said? I would have not spoken sibspeak. I would have said, you know, we are estranged, and we always have been, and some of that's not our fault. Why don't we work on our relationship so that we want to be together? Right. How do you like that? It's brilliant, Jeannie. If only <laughs> it's, it's brilliant because it's not that I'm brilliant. I'm, I'm looking at it, you no. know, from yes. from outside and thinking, why the hell not call it what it is? You know, yes, we are estranged. What I didn't think he knew it. I mean, if he said that to me, you know, if he wanted a relationship with me, then like maybe that was also a way of saying he would want it. And why don't I reach my hand out? Right. You know, and so, by the way, you can reach out to the person, as as this other example I gave you, in nonverbal ways too. There are lots of ways. Children are a wonderful source of this, um, because many people told me that it was through a reproach that they had a rapprochement with a sibling, through the children liking each other and spending time together. Right. So and the they next kind of generation the healed it together, which. You know, this is also hopeful. I mean, there's two kinds of hopes, hope here. One is that you really don't have to have a relationship with a toxic sibling, and you could be liberated from that and find real brothers and sisters. And the other is that you might be able to change a toxic sibling into a, a better sibling through mutual effort. Right. So part of what I was I learned from listening to you and, and reading your book about Sib Speak is this idea that you know, because on one hand, it seems so obvious, like, well, why wouldn't you be direct? Why wouldn't you name it? You know, why wouldn't you say, well, yes, we are estranged right now. But what was striking in all the examples of dialogue that you gave is no one was calling a spade a spade. No one was saying, yes, oh, right. you feel, you know, like in the example of the shoebox of stuff versus the closet of articles. Oh, do you, you must feel that, you know, mom really favored me. What is that like for you? You're like this, yeah. this and kind of thing isn't say, happening. And why do you think it is that people avoid naming what's really going on? I think they have this fear that if they say it, that suddenly the sibling will know it or, or a fantasy that the sibling doesn't really know it. And if you say it, you're going to ruin everything. You're going to destroy everything. But the fact is, it's already destroyed. The fact that the person is speaking sibspeak rather than English shows it, it conveys all of their pain. Mm. And, you know, that's what people don't realize. They're not going to have anything to lose if they try to be direct. But it means, first of all, overcoming perhaps your own guilt. For instance, the brother who had the closet of stuff would have had to say, and, and I have examples of what you should actually say in all these instances, Okay. Um, yes, you know, it's true. Mom really favored me. 
and that was not good for either one of us. But now she's gone. Can we repair? You know, it seems like it's like the window is open and fresh air comes in. Yes, because I think, so let's talk a little bit about favoritism, because I know that's very much kind of in the public ear right now, this question yes. about siblings and favoritism. And I can imagine that the that the favored son in this story, the one who had, who's, you know, the mother had the whole closet of his stuff, would somehow, to admit it like that, yes, it's true, would almost make him feel more guilty, almost like it makes it more real. Like until yes. he names it, it isn't really real. That's right. Yes, and when you name it, it becomes real, and you have to take responsibility for it. Okay, the so let me ask you about unfair. that. Now, you can say it's unfair, but whose fault is it? If there's favoritism, how much is the parent's fault, and how much is the favorite's fault? I mean, how do you parse that out? Well, to me, um, the favoritism, first of all, is not completely avoidable. But I think it's the parent's responsibility because they're the adults. But then the favored child also has a part in it because they like it. They want it. They feel entitled to it. You know, I went through most of my life and feeling that I was totally entitled to be my parents' golden one. And I was really the golden one. I mean, my brother was in the outer darkness and, and I was, you know, I was the beloved one. Um, and it, it wasn't until I actually began to write about him and the normal one that I realized, why was I entitled to this and not him? You know, uh, I could see why my parents favored me over him because I was easier in many ways, but why didn't they think about that? Why didn't they try to work it out? Why didn't they think about their own childhoods and how it affected particularly my father to not be the favored child? You know, um, that would have made a difference. So part of what I remember when, when I first read some of your work on siblings being so moved and in some ways really stunned by your open acknowledgement that you had felt entitled to being the favorite. And in fact, it seemed natural to you because you really did think you were so interesting. And yes. <laughs> and I, I was sort of stunned that it was possible to be so honest. <laughs> and you. And that, well, in fact... I didn't want to spare myself. You know, I really didn't want to spare myself because I think we need to see these things. The unfavored child needs to see how much he or she resents and even hates and envies the favored one. And the favored one needs to see a relief that he or she feels that she's got it and the other one doesn't and wanting to hold on to it. You know, and feeling like it, all these these rationalizations we give. Well, of course, you know, of course, my parents favored me. I did better in school, or you know, or right. I was an athlete, or or my brother was in trouble, or whatever. As though that's a justification for something. So, what I hear you saying is that the favorite needs to, and somehow, sort of come clean with themselves, yes. acknowledge that they felt they deserved it, name it, and without defensiveness to the one who was not favored. Are there yes. things that the unfavored, now adult sibling can do that will help reconcile Absolutely. It? Absolutely. And the thing that I found is I went to the book of Genesis and looked at the dysfunctional siblings of Genesis. And my favorite sibling, the one who worked it out, was Esau. Because Jacob got everything. He got the birthright. He got his father's love. He got everything. But at, when he meets Jacob as an, old, as a, as an adult... He says, I have enough. When he, when he meets Esau. 
Yes. Esau when says Esau that, yes. meets his brother, mm-hmm. who has gotten everything, and he says to his brother, I have enough, brother, and he goes and embraces him. And so what the unfavored child needs to do is recognize to stop being a victim of what his parents did to him and to make his own life. No easy thing. But when you do, you're free from defining yourself as the unfavored one. So both children in that situation, or you know, there could be multiple children, have to, have to look at themselves honestly. The, the unfavored one has to see envy and hatred and being a victim and how it's satisfying in a way to be a victim and feeling like the one that didn't get. And the one who's favored has to see that it was unfair and he or she really enjoyed it. So both people have to do things. It's I wonder, do both you think sides it, of this yes. have to be fixed. Do you think it helps free the unfavored one for the favored one to acknowledge it that honestly? I mean, does that, can well, that set the I ball? Well, I had that conversation with my brother. I tried at least. I said to him at one point when we were, were talking briefly, <laughs> I said, um, you know, both of our parents favored me, and it wasn't fair. And I know it was terrible for you, but ultimately it wasn't good for me either because it made it hard for us to have a relationship. And he seemed astonished at him. I can imagine. He said, really? You think that? And I said, yes, it's the truth. It's the truth, Stephen. You didn't get what you needed. You know, and I feel terrible about that now. And it felt like, you know, even though we could never fix it, I'm so glad I was able to know that and to communicate it because it frees me at least from part of the guilt of having so much better a life than my brother. And how, when you say it frees me of part of that guilt, do you still have some of that guilt? Well, he's dead and I'm not, among other things. And I know that that some of it we don't ever completely get rid of, and we don't have to. You know, I'm all for partial solutions. <laughs> You're not perfectionist about <laughs> good this. Good enough solutions. Good <laughs> enough brothers and sisters. Good enough parenting. You know, um, I, I think, you know, we're all human. And you know, when you when you grow up with somebody who had a lousy life and dies a double amputee, you know, and you just wrote a book and you're talking to Dr. Ann, I mean, yeah. <laughs> survivor <laughs> guilt. Right. Yeah. Right. It's no, survivor I... guilt. And you can lessen that. You can make it not rule you. You can make it not sabotage your life. But do you ever totally get over it? I, I don't know. I don't expect to. If I do, I'll be happy. But... It, it's not tormenting me anymore, and it's not, and most important, it's not unconscious, you know, because I know it, and I know how entitled I felt. It's quite conscious, and things that you know hurt you less than things that you don't. Another thing that I really learned from you was that the importance of the favored child not looking to the less favored one to relieve their guilt, not looking to that person yes. to absolve them. Yes, my interview subjects taught me that. And that was a profound lesson because one of the things that people do, and they don't even know they're doing it, is when they go to a brother and sister and try to make up, they explain everything they did, and they look, because they're so guilty, they look to the person that, that they actually harmed to absolve them. But the fact is, you've got to work your guilt out yourself. And what you present to your brother and sister is, this was lousy for you. Right. 
You know, not this was lousy for me because all they think is, oh yeah, she's hogging the spotlight another time. Yet again, you know? <laughs> and, and yet again, I'm in the position that I have to, I have to accept this, and I have to not put myself forward. And there she is in the spotlight all over again. You know, and this is this is this makes them hate you. Right. You said something a minute ago that really got my attention, Jeannie. You said, you know, I don't know. Do you get totally over it? And I want to end tonight talking a little bit about the role of therapy in sibling relationships. Because for one thing, it feels so refreshing to hear you acknowledge that maybe you don't totally get over it. I think one of the ways that therapy markets itself is almost as if it is possible to completely heal from things. And I hear you being far more, you know... (laughs) um, humble you know, in some way about the limits of what can what you can do and what you can't do. Well, well, thank you. And I think people really feel relieved to know that partial resolutions are the name of the game. You know, whether they're with yourself or with a sibling or with a parent um, or with somebody who's betrayed you, you know, all of these things, if we, if we get over hatred, if we get over self-hatred uh, to the point that we could function well and it doesn't rule us, that's huge. Right. That's absolutely huge. And why do you think... Because life has lots of opportunities to work things out, you know. Indeed. Again and again. Yeah. Um, and so you write about how therapy kind of... Or Freud in particular really missed the ball on this one. Oh. And I wondered if you could say a little bit, because Freud is credited with, with the phrase sibling rivalry, and yet what I learned from you is how much he actually missed it. And tell me more about that. Well, he missed it because, of course, he was his mother called him my goldener Siggy, which means my golden Siggy. Uh, didn't call any of the other eight children anything like that. He really was totally favored and totally entitled. And he never looked at it because he felt so guilty about it. He had a brother. The next child was a younger brother who died very young. And I think this really terrified Freud, his own pleasure that the brother died it it was manifested in his life from, with constant rivalry with his colleagues and anxiety about his position he just never looked at siblings my my favorite reference to this in is that in the 404 page index to his works there are five references to siblings none to brothers and sisters but one to siberia <laughs> and my fantasy was <laughs> that all of the siblings went there. <laughs> well, what I what and since then we've never looked at it until recently. And you tell this very powerful story about his sister who loved to play piano and in fact was yes. better at at piano than him. Was not allowed to practice because the noise he was of it bothered at it. Right. Because it bothered him. So because, to favor him, she, she had to give up this thing that she loved. Yes. The mother not only got rid of Anna's piano, but didn't let any of the other children take music lessons mm. so you know this was this was totally crazy so so he just took this as his due so where's the sibling rivalry <laughs> right. i won it was fair i'm better than anybody else <laughs> and and also in therapy until really quite recently this was astonishingly not examined you know i'm actually working on a talk called siblings the family member freud forgot <laughs> 
Yes, right. For God being ironic. Yes, of course. Exactly. So we're going to have to end in a minute. But one last question, which is I know Mm -hmm. that you asked all your interviewees about how the dynamic with their sibling affected them in the future. And this is a cornerstone of your book is it deal with it because it affects you in all these other ways. And I wondered if you could give an example of that in closing. I think who you marry, how your friendships go. I know, for instance, I was so worried about being envied by my brother that I'm always worried about being envied by my friends in ways that other people who weren't envied by their brothers don't feel. And I finally know why. And it helps me. And I can even talk about envy with my friends. Isn't that amazing? That is wonderful. It's not so scary anymore, Anne, when you you know where it came from and why. That's my message. Dr. Jeannie Safer, you have been my teacher in this respect with your courage to name. Thank you. It's an honor. Really, to name these, these forbidden feelings of envy, of rage, of shame, and regret. Thank you so much, Jeannie Safer. Well, thank you. And I want to direct people to Dr. Safer's book, again, Cain's Legacy, Liberating Siblings from a Lifetime of Rage, Shame, Secrecy, and Regret. I look forward to the next time. I want to thank Ken Capron for mixing the sound tonight and Maurice Lennon for the music. Also, Neil McKenty for being my consultant. If you'd like to listen to this interview in its entirety or email the link to a friend, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can also subscribe there to get a weekly announcement with a link to the show, and you can download us now at the iTunes store. If you'd like to email me with a request for a future topic, please do so at Ann at safespaceradio.com. You can also like us on Facebook. Coming up next is Watchdog with Ken.